Uh, God is doing a work among the Amish people. It's hard for us to realize how much they're giving up. Like one man said that they had dismissed him from the church, and so he didn't have access to the tax shop, to the uh, place where they co-opt the food, to any of the services or benefits. As part of the community, they have their insurance. In other words, they each take care of their needs. They don't have that any longer. Uh, Can't work with them. Jobs, income. I mean, suddenly their whole life is turned around. And when they get put in a band, other people can't can't meet with them. can't eat with them. You'll have a kid get put in a band and the daddy, they can't let them come home, visit, sit down and eat. So it's like you have to treat your children as if they're some kind of enemy. And, you know, that's hard. That's very hard on people. And a lot of them are, their whole life is torn apart just by getting saved. Some of them hadn't even got saved yet. All they did was start reading their Bible. There was over 100 kicked out in Pennsylvania most recently just for reading their Bibles. It's all right for them to read the German Bible, which they can't read because they don't get anything out of it. One of them said to me, he said, our leaders said it proves that you can't understand the English Bible because when you read it, this is what happens. You begin to want to trust in Jesus and him only, you know, and avoid the elders of the church and the authorities that are over you. Over 100 of them. One family that was there had uh, gone to a wedding at uh, another community and they were left in the house that they were staying, the people they were staying with alone and they found a little iPod. And picked it up and pushed a button and it came on and said, Mike Pearl. They said they'd heard of him. I want to find out what that was about. So they put the little earphones in and started listening to the book of Romans. They found it was about the word of God. They got caught. (laughs) And so they were out. And uh, others, for different reasons like that, had been kicked out, put under a ban, and lost, uh, lost everything. So their concern was how they could continue with community. Uh, and so that's what we talked about a lot, is how they could continue with community and uh, not be a part of the Amish church. It was, uh, <laughs> you know, you're, it's like being in the presence of martyrs. Because these people were really sacrificing. One of them actually made that statement. He said, well, we've just got to be willing to be to be martyred, to give up everything for Christ. And that's what a lot of them were doing. By the way, there was two Holderman Mennonites there. I think one of them was a preacher, a pastor. The other one, was he a pastor too? They're both pastors? I think so. They're both about 55 to 62, 63, somewhere like that. Look, look, look like the Holdermans you see here. And they were kind of straight-faced and stalwart, you know, started off. I don't think either one of them had been converted yet. I'm not sure. Uh, and uh, they uh, they asked some questions, but they were very respectful and listened. And I could see that the gospel was really getting through to them. Now, they, the fact that they were there indicated they had some kind of a curiosity or hunger or something to come and listen and participate. But uh, I made a, you know how I am, I was talking about a security of the believer and I gave that illustration of climbing up the mountain with the Boy Scouts and and uh, the man telling them that, uh, telling the parents he wouldn't lose any of them. They'd all be secure. He'd bring them back down. And as soon as the parents disappeared and got out of the way and they got around the first bend, he told the kids, he said, I think all of you are going to die today. You're such a, such a lazy, uh, disobedient crowd. There's no way you're going to make it through if you don't pay attention to what I say and do exactly like I tell you. There'll be places you can fall a thousand feet. You'll surely die. I was comparing the Bible passages that teach we're secure with the Bible passages that teach we need to endure Stay in the faith or we'll lose it. And show them the balance between those two. And so I had them get up about two, three hundred feet up. And I said, well, some kid looks over and he puts his foot out over there. Nah, 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 showing it off. And, uh, and the scoutmaster said to him, said, son, you're going to die if you don't uh, obey me. And he said, I can't die. You told my mom I wouldn't. So it doesn't matter what I do now. I'm, I'm eternally secure here. There's no way I can fall off the mountain. And uh, I said, now that's a, that's a Baptist. <laughs> and then here's this other kid. He's got his back against the wall. Oh, no, I'm going to die. No, I'm going to die. <laughs> I said, that's a Holman Mennonite. <laughs> <laughs> and of course, everybody just roared laughing except these two Holdermen. 
And everybody knew they're holding a Mennonite, you know. So, <laughs> so I, I didn't pull any punches. I told him, I said, you folks, I said, I don't understand you. I said, how in the world you could believe something this stuff's beyond me? I said, just, I cannot believe somebody could be this dumb to accept these kinds of doctrines and be under this kind of control and rule. And they, they accepted that. They appreciated that. I didn't pull any punches whatsoever. I made fun of how people honor them, how people come to visit and buy honey or vegetables and think, oh, you're so spiritual. I said, they don't realize how much immorality and pride there is behind all that face. And uh, I mean, I just, anything I'd say to you, I said to them. And they agreed and they accepted. They didn't agree. They, uh, they wrestled with it. I saw, we, we would get through with a session. We'd have a two-hour session. And I would leave for two hours to go rest or eat or whatever it was. And, and as I was leaving, I'd see six men sitting in a circle in chairs, just really talking. Three over here, seven standing over there. Come back two hours later, that seven's still there. These three are here. Those five or six are still there, still talking, going full speed. I don't know if any of them ever ate. I said to one of them, did you eat? He said, I had apple. And, and they're ready to go again. And I've never had so many people... Well, you have 250 people and they all attend, you know, except maybe some of the women with the babies or something step out. But they're all there and they're there all the time. And they don't skip and they stay right to the last minute. And I left. They were still all there. And uh, they were there till three o'clock. Were they? The time we were supposed to be out of the building, they were still there. Yeah. And when I went outside, they were still outside. Mm-hmm. You know, groups like that. They were very serious about it. They, they came to, to hear the word and. I taught through Romans from chapter 118 to, um, to through chapter 8. And then uh, they want to know about security of the believers, so I taught through that. They want to know about Matthew. and See, one of them I thought summed it up beautifully. He, he, had, the, he had the clearest thought on that. After I taught Book of James and different things, he said, you know, the difference is this. He said, you view the Gospels through Romans. He said, we view Romans through the Gospels. By the Gospels, he means those passages that says, if you don't feed the hungry and the poor, uh, if you don't visit me in prison, then you'll be cast into outer darkness. And so they take those passages in the Gospels, like in Matthew 24 and 25, where it talks about the five wise and five foolish virgins and the children of the kingdom being cast into outer darkness. Be no security in their salvation because they take all those Old Testament law that's found in Matthew and they make it the steps to heaven. And he said, when we come to Romans, we just say, can't understand that. Don't know what Paul's talking about. And But he said, you take Romans and you go back and you read the Gospels in terms of Romans. So then I had to get into the kingdoms, the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. And I saw how vital that book is. To their understanding. And when I wrote it, I understood that vitalness, but I've never seen a group of people where it was more vital than them to understand the difference between the kingdom of God and the kingdom of heaven. Because they were using the, the law concerning the kingdom of heaven to try to get into the kingdom of God. Wrong kingdom, wrong method, wrong time, wrong people, wrong dispensation. But they don't claim to be dispensationalists. So... I couldn't hardly say anything that it wasn't contrary to what they believed. You know what I mean? Just everything I had to say was, they were, they didn't know anything. They didn't know any Bible. They knew maybe 15, 20 verses and didn't know where it was. And, uh, but they had their, they had, they'd been inundated with this all of their life and these concepts. So, uh, but I enjoyed it. Great, great fun. All right. Get your Bibles out. If you want to try to follow along, we're going to look at a subject that uh, our brother has already brought up this morning. Israel is God's chosen people. Israel is God's chosen people. Now, why is this important? Because all of our eschatology, that is doctrine of last things of Christ's second coming, hinges on proper understanding here of Israel. Now, I know I'm preaching to the choir. But uh, at one time, he, we had here in our presence, a man lives in the community here. He attended Bible studies. He was diligent. He was faithful. He heard me teach for several, several years. And then one day, someone told him that God was through with Israel. 
and he dropped out and now he's a Jew hater. Now he's part of basically what would be a white supremacist mentality. Now he rejects the concept that God is going to work with the Jews once again. And it's hurt his whole life. It's destroyed his life and family in a lot of ways because of that doctrine. So just because you sit here and hear the doctrines of the word of God over and over again doesn't mean that you're immune to error. Now this this man I'm talking about even had someone come visit him with the numbers on his arm from the concentration camps. And yet he denied that there were any concentration camps where Jews were killed, six million of them. Now, this man could tell his personal story, but people like him come to believe that there was no Holocaust, there were no Jews killed. You know, that can only be explained one way. It can't be explained through history or reading or intelligence. It's explained one way, and that is a spirit of darkness, a spirit of Antichrist, a spirit of deep, deep darkness. See, when God chooses something, the devil wants to destroy it. When God calls something one way, the devil wants to call it another. And so there are many people who deny it. We're going to just look at a few. I could give you um, 2,000 passages <laughs> easily. 2,000 passages. I could stand right here today and go till 5 o'clock by memory and give you passages that say that God is not through with the Jews and is going to work with them again. But we're going to just look at a few key ones here and uh, confirm in our thinking. All right, Exodus 19, 5. Now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then you shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine, and you shall be unto me a kingdom of priests, a holy nation. These are the words. Which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. That's what God told Moses to say to them. Now, the Jews didn't obey God fully in all ways. In fact, most of the time they disobeyed him. And God continually brought judgment upon them. Psalm 145, 4. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. So these two verses use the word peculiar and you know, when you think about God choosing one small nation of rebellious people, that is peculiar. When you think about the fact that they crucified the Messiah and then persecuted the early church, that God should still care, love them, and promise to redeem them someday is most peculiar. When you consider the fact that in Israel there's probably more atheists per capita than any other nation on the face of the earth, and that God still loves them and chooses them, that's peculiar. And so they're his peculiar people and his peculiar treasure. Deuteronomy 7, 6. For thou art a holy God unto the Lord thy God. The Lord thy God hath chosen thee to be a special people unto himself above all people that are upon the face of the earth. Is that clear? God has chosen to be a peculiar people, a special people above, above all nations upon the face of the earth. Now we live in a time... When there's this political correctness, that all people are equal, all are loved alike, all are chosen alike, and uh, all are viewed alike. That is not true in God's reckoning. God has chosen one group of people above all others. He's chosen one nation above all others. That's what he said. Now, you may say that's not fair, but uh, the Jews also say it's not fair. Many a time a Jew in the midst of persecution, what they call a pogon, the midst of deprivation have said, God, choose someone else for a while. And uh, so that's been pretty well their lot is to be judged more severely than other nations. He said, a special people above all others. The Lord did not set his love upon you, nor choose you, because you were more in number than any people, for you were the fewest of all people. But because the Lord loved you, and because he would keep the oath which he had sworn under your father, Hath the Lord brought you out with a mighty hand, redeemed you out of the house of the bondman from the hand of Pharaoh, king of Egypt? Know therefore that the Lord thy God, he is God, the faithful God, which keepeth covenant and mercy with them that love him and keep his commandments to a thousand generations. 
There's a promise that God's going to keep his covenant with Israel for a thousand generations. You say, what happens after that? After that, they will no longer exist as a Jewish nation. They will be part of the eternal kingdom of God. First Kings 11.36 And unto his son will I give one tribe, that David my servant may have a light alway before me in Jerusalem, the city which I have chosen me to put my name there. So there is a city God chose. He chose a people and he chose a city above all others. So much so that when the heavenly city comes down from God, the place where the bride will be, it is called the new Jerusalem. First Chronicles sixteen thirteen. O ye seed of Israel, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen ones. God does have a chosen people, chosen ones, peculiar ones, called out ones, special ones. First Chronicles six six. But I have chosen Jerusalem that my name might be there. Psalm eighty nine three. I have made a covenant with my chosen. I have sworn unto David my servant. Now here's what God swore. All of Psalm eighty nine is worth reading. In fact, Psalm 89 is a powerful statement uh, about God's choosing Israel. Listen to this. Thy seed will I establish forever and build up thy throne to all generations. Also, I will make him my firstborn higher than the king's ears. My mercy will I keep for him forevermore. My covenant shall stand fast with him. Listen. His seed will I make to endure forever. His throne as the days of heaven, if his children forsake my law and walk not in my judgments, he's talking about David here. If his children forsake my laws and walk not in my judgments, if they break my statues and keep not my commandments, then will I visit their transgression with a rod, their iniquity with the stripes. Nevertheless, my loving kindness will I not utterly take from him, nor suffer my faithfulness to fail. My covenant will I not break, nor alter the thing that has gone out of my lips. That's in light of. If they break his commandments, break his statutes, if they're in transgression, I will not break my covenant, nor alter a thing that's gone out of my lips. Once have I sworn by my holiness that I will not lie unto David, swore by his holiness, his seed, David's seed, shall endure forever, and his throne as the sun before me. It shall be established forever as the moon, as a faithful witness in heaven. Now that's most clear that's most clear. He says that if they break his statutes and his commandments and his laws and go astray, he'll judge them. But he won't take away his covenant. He's sworn in his holiness. You know, 99.9% of the church believes that God's through with the Jews. All Roman Catholics, all Calvinists, all the Church of England, all Jehovah's Witnesses, Mormons, Church of Christ. Most of the Methodists, some old-fashioned ones, may, few of them, uh, believe God's going to yet work with Jews. Most of them, no. About the only people on the face of the earth now that believe that God is going to work with the Jews yet again would be the Baptist of all kinds and all stripes. And some assemblies of God and church of God and some other Pentecostals and mixed charismatics and Bible churches and independent non-denominational churches and that's a small number relative to worldwide christendom greek orthodox no russian orthodox no in other words all the major religions of europe reject the concept that god is once again going to work with the jews and so very 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 small percentage of christians believe this now the bible teaches it so plainly how do they reconcile the scriptures with their rejection of that? Well, they resort to a method called allegorizing scripture. They take it figuratively. They say when it says Israel, it really means the church. When it says David, it really means Christ. When it says a thousand years, it really just means an indefinite blessing. And they take all of those statements that are quite literally given and reduce them down to some figurative poetic language. I was reading after one of the amillennialists, that is no millennium, he admitted this. He said, sure, if you took the Bible literally, you'd be pre-tribulational, pre-millennialist. But you can't do that. And he said that as if it were a given, so obvious that no one could really take the Bible 
literally. Now, by literally, he doesn't mean that you don't recognize allegory. And when we say we take it literally, we don't mean that there's not metaphor or figure of speech in it. We simply mean that we we recognize the grammatical meaning of words and give them the meaning that would be used in any normal speech or language or writing. We don't take literal language and turn it into poetic language. Now, we read in Psalm 105, 6, O ye seed of Abraham, his servant, ye children of Jacob, his chosen. Psalm 132, 13, for the Lord hath chosen Zion, he hath desired it for his habitation. There's a hundred verses like this for every one I'm reading. For the Lord hath chosen Jacob unto himself and Israel for his peculiar treasure. Says it again, peculiar treasure. Uh, verse 5, Psalm 135, 5. For I know that the Lord is great, that our God is above all gods. Whatsoever the Lord pleased that he did in heaven and earth, the sea and in the deep places. That's in connection with the peculiar treasure that God chose. In other words, if God chooses to do that, us not liking it, it's not going to change the fact. Then Jeremiah 33, 9 is a great passage. Jeremiah 33, 9. The word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah saying, now listen to this. This is God speaking to Jeremiah. Thus saith the Lord. He's speaking to the Jews. If you can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night. Now, what is the covenant of the day? That's what he gave to Noah. He said, as long as the earth remains, there'll be day and night, seed and harvest. In other words, there'll be seasons and and a day and night. That's his covenant of the day. That he will never again flood the earth with water, but the seasons and the days and the weeks will continue to the end of time. That's his covenant. Now, you know, you could take that figuratively. And say, well, really the days are not going to continue and the seasons are not going to continue. What he really meant was that seasons like love and peace. and No, if you're going to take that in its meaning, then it means that day and night, seed time and harvest. You say, well, harvest and seed time, that's talking about sowing the gospel. See, that's figurative. That's allegorical. So we we take literally the context in which which he gave that terms of Noah and what had just occurred. Listen to this. If you can break my covenant of the day and my covenant of the night, that there should be more, no more day or night in their seasons, then may also my covenant be broken with David, my servant, that he should not have a son to reign upon his throne and with the Levites, the priest, my ministers. You say, well, see, David, Jesus is David's son. But what about the Levites and the priest? Also, they're included in this covenant. Jesus was not a Levite. As the host of heaven cannot be numbered, neither the sand of the sea measured, so will I multiply the seed of David, my servant, and the Levites that minister unto me. As the sand on the seashore, as the stars in heaven. Do you know there's about 15 million Jews in the world? They got them numbered. I mean, there's probably another two or three million that are not counted, that are missed out on the census, that are no longer part of the community. But they know there's about 15 million. And uh, so that is numbering. And that's nowhere near the stars of heaven or the sand on the seashore innumerable. And then we read uh, verse 23 in Jeremiah 33. We're continuing. Uh, Moreover, the word of the Lord came unto Jeremiah saying, Consider thou not that this people have spoken, saying, The two families which the Lord hath chosen, he hath even cast them off. Thus, they have despised my people that they should be no more a nation before them. So God said to Jeremiah, have you considered the fact that people are saying that I've cast off these two nations? That's Judah in the south and Israel in the north. Uh, Judah composed of basically two tribes of Judah and Benjamin and the ten tribes of the north. Have you considered the fact that people are saying that I'm through with them? Exactly what people are saying today. Have you considered that, that they say that uh, I'm not going to work with them anymore? Thus saith the Lord, if my covenant be not with day and night, and if I have not appointed the ordinance of heaven and earth, then will I cast away the seed of Jacob and Abraham my servant. Now, wait a minute. He's changed something here. He didn't say the seed of David, which you could allegorically interpret to be born again children of God. He said the seed of Jacob. Now, Jacob, that's the 12 tribes. The seed of Jacob and David, my servant, so that I will not take any of his seed to be rulers over the seed of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob. Then will I cause their captivity to return and have mercy on them. 
So that's what they said. They said, he's through with them. He said, okay, only if you can break my covenant of day and night. Now, Jeremiah 23, 5 says, behold, the days come, saith the Lord, that I'll raise unto David a righteous branch. And a king shall reign and prosper and shall execute judgment and justice in the earth. In his days, Judah shall be saved and Israel shall dwell safely. That's both aspects. All of the 12 tribes. And this is the name whereby he shall be called. He's referring to Christ, the Lord, our righteousness. Now, that's not yet been fulfilled. Isaiah 24, 23. The moon shall be confounded. The sun ashamed, that's the tribulation, when the Lord of hosts shall reign in Mount Zion and in Jerusalem and before his ancients gloriously. Wait a minute, before his ancients? That's a prophecy that God himself, the branch, is going to rule in Israel, in Jerusalem, on Mount Zion, and before him will be the ancient saints there with him. That will be Noah, Adam, Lamech, Seth, maybe Shemham and Japheth, Abraham, before the ancients, gloriously. Now, turn to Ezekiel 37. We're going to dwell there a little longer. Ezekiel 37 and 1. We're going to go through that whole chapter, actually. This is Ezekiel's vision of the valley of dry bones. Man, this was a popular prophecy in 45 and 46 and 47 and 48, 1945, 46, 47, 48. This was so current then to the Jewish people. By the way, if you go to Israel, you find little plaques, uh, bronze plaques, sitting different places in recognition of fulfilled Bible prophecy. This is one of those fulfilled Bible prophecies that the Jews have pointed out among themselves. The hand of the Lord, Ezekiel 37, 1, the hand of the Lord was upon me and carried me out in the spirit of the Lord and set me down in the midst of a valley which was full of bones. Now, in our part of the world, uh, mice will eat the bones if you leave them laying out there. But in those desert places where even mice can't survive, uh, bones will lay there for a long time in hot, arid places where it'll only rain a few inches a year. They'll just lie there year after year after year. And caused me to pass by them round about. And behold, there was very many in the open valley, and lo, they were very dry. In other words, these bones have been dead a long time. They have any flesh or skin left on them. And he said unto me, God challenges Ezekiel, son of man, can these bones live? Now, that's a pretty tough question. You've got a valley with about 20,000, 30,000 dead people scattered through it. All these scattered bones. Can these bones live? And I answered, O Lord, thou knowest. In other words, he was a politician. He wasn't going to say no. He wasn't going to say yes. Uh, he, he said, thou knowest. Again, he said unto me, prophesy upon these bones and say unto them, Oh, ye dry bones, hear the word of the Lord. Now, this, this was not going to be too difficult for Ezekiel because he'd been prophesying to the Jews. And that was the same thing as prophesying to dry bones. So he's challenged to do it one more time. Hear the word of the Lord. Thus saith the Lord God unto these bones, behold, I will cause breath to enter into you and you shall live and I will lay sin you upon you and I'll bring up flesh upon you and cover you with skin and put breath in you and you shall live and you shall know that I am the Lord. So I prophesied as I was commanded and as I prophesied there was a noise and behold a shaking and the bones came together bone to his bone. That must have been a sight. Can you imagine a valley with 20, 30, 40,000 dead soldiers and all those bones looking for their, for, the, for each other, about, about, rumbling over the top of each other, rolling past each other, trying to find each one of the backbones, trying to find its proper uh, backbone and each leg bone trying to find its proper thigh bone and each thigh bone. Yeah, you could sing that, couldn't you? And uh, ankle bones, all the finger bones, all these bones moving at one time looking for their placement. 
great shaking in the valley. And when I beheld, lo, the sinew and the flesh came upon them. Now, Hollywood would have a time with that, wouldn't they? Uh, with the uh, special effects, with all everything growing and uh, the vessels and the muscles being formed and coming up on them. And the skin covered them above, but there was no breath in them. They're all lying there, completely reassembled, fleshed, and just dead as can be. Then said unto me, prophesy unto the wind, prophesy, son of man, and say unto the wind, thus saith the Lord God, come from the four winds, O breath, and breathe upon these slain that they may live. So they'd been slain, they were dead. So he's told to prophesy to the wind. So I prophesied as he commanded me and breath came into them and they lived and stood upon their feet an exceeding great army. They weren't just men, women, children. This was an army. And these dead bones stood up. There they were standing in formation now. A valley full of soldiers ready to go. And he said unto me, son of man, these bones are the whole house of Israel. Remember, this is a vision. And uh, so it is a figure of something. And God tells us what the figure is. He said, these bones represent not the house of Israel, the whole house of Israel, which means all 12 tribes. Behold, they say, our bones are dried. This is what the Jews were saying. Our hope is lost. We are cut off for our parts. That's because the tribes were separated. The ten tribes had been carried into Assyria and the two tribes and what remained of the ten tribes had been carried into Babylon nearly a hundred years later. And then a portion returns from Babylon after 70 years. Some are left in Syria, some are left in Babylon, and uh, many of them have scattered during the times of persecution to faraway places, even as far as India, uh, on up into uh, the mountains in southern Europe, Turkey, down into Africa, North Africa, all over into Libya, Ethiopia. So Jews had scattered all over the world. He said, our bones are dried up. We're scattered, cut off from our parts. Therefore prophesy and say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, O my people, I will open your graves and cause you to come out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Do you see how appropriate this was in 1946? When there were Jews in concentration camps ready to be put into ovens, their relatives and friends already big piles of bones laying there where the Germans had slain them and the Polish and the Russians. And he said, I will open your graves, cause you to come out of your graves and bring you into the land of Israel. Surely when those doors of those concentration camps swung open and several hundred skinny, emaciated, 68 to 85 pound Jews came walking out of there. Their skulls so receded, you could see in what teeth were left. You could see it through the cheekbones imprinted upon their cheeks. Uh, they looked like walking skeletons coming out of the graves. Ye shall know that I am the Lord when I've opened your graves, O my people, and brought you up out of your graves. Now, that was only um, a, a partial fulfillment. Uh, there have been several of those. The ultimate fulfillment is yet to take place. And shall put my spirit in you and you shall live and place you in your own land. And you shall know that I am the Lord. I've spoken it, performed it, saith the Lord God. Now the Jews take this to be completely fulfilled in that one event. We know it's not. And the word of the Lord came unto me saying, moreover, thou son of man, take thee one stick and write up on it for Judah. So he took a stick of wood and he wrote Judah on it. And take another stick and write up on it for Joseph, the stick of Ephraim, and for the house of Israel, his companions. So he took the other stick and he wrote for Joseph and Ephraim, who was the chosen one in descendants there, and wrote the house of Israel. So now you have two sticks. You have one that represents the southern two tribes and one that represents the northern tribes, which battled against each other after Solomon died for so long until they were carried off into captivity. So he said, write up on these sticks. And join them one to another into one stick, and they shall become one in that hand. So he takes the two sticks, place them together, and magically they become one stick in his hand. And when the children of Israel shall speak unto me, saying, Will thou not show us what thou meanest by these? Now, what prophets did in those days? They were, they were showmen. 
A prophet didn't just preach, he illustrated. He gave a, uh, what do you call it, a visual aid to his messages. And a lot of them were, were wild and crude things. They were quite a, quite a show. And people would come out to watch him. And so he, when the children of Israel see you joining those two sticks, and they say, what does this mean? Say unto them, thus saith the Lord God, behold, I will take the stick of Joseph, which is in the hand of Ephraim, and the tribe of Israel, his followers, and I'll put them with him, even with the stick of Judah, and make them one stick, and they shall be one in mine hand. And the sticks thereon thou writest shall be in thine hand before their eyes. And say unto them, Thus saith the Lord God, Behold, I will take the children of Israel from among the heathen, whither they be gone, and I'll gather them on every side and bring them into their own land. God has been doing that now since 1940. Actually, started back in the early part of the 1900s, but it really took off after the Second World War. And I will make them one nation in the land upon the mountains of Israel, and one king shall be king to them all, and they shall be no more two nations, neither shall they be divided into two kingdoms any more at all. Neither shall they defile themselves any more with idols, nor with their detestable things, nor with any of their transgressions, but I will save them out of their dwelling places wherein they've sinned, I will cleanse them, so shall they be my people, and I'll be their God. Now, the latter part of that, of course, has not been fulfilled. He's not cleansed them. He's not saved them from their detestable things. 24, 37, 24. And David, my servant. Here's, here's the key part. David, my servant, shall be king over them. David's been dead now for about 3,000 years. And yet he said, in that future day when i bring them back from their graves from the nations david is going to reign over them and they shall have one shepherd they shall also walk in my judgments, observe my statutes and do them they shall dwell in the land which i've given unto jacob my servant now they'll dwell in the land which i gave unto jacob you see if you're going to allegorically take this to be the church you've got to get all the church ended up over there in that piece of land mass that god gave to jacob And that'd be a very difficult stretch, even allegorically. And shall dwell therein, even they and their children and their children's children forever. That means that there'll never be a time in eternity. Ten hundred million billion years from now, there will be the descendants of Israel, of Jacob, in that area we now call Palestine. Being on new heavens and a new earth, but it'll be reconstructed after this model. And there they will dwell forever. And my servant David shall be their prince forever. You see, we have have two options here. We can be Church of England, Calvinist, Greek Orthodox, Roman Catholic, allegorical, amillennialist, postmillennialist, or we can be Bible believers. And if we're Bible believers... We have to believe God is not through with the Jews. Moreover, I will make a covenant of peace with them. It shall be an everlasting covenant with them. And I will place them and multiply them. And I will set my sanctuary in the midst of them forever. That's the new city coming down. My tabernacle also shall be with them. Yea, I'll be their God. They shall be my people. And the heathen shall know that I am the Lord to sanctify Israel when my sanctuary shall be in the midst of them forevermore. All right. Now, Hosea 3, 4. For the children of Israel shall abide many days without a king. He prophesied that. Children of Israel shall abide many days without a king, without a prince, without a sacrifice, without an image, without an ephod, without teraphim. Afterward shall the children of Israel turn, seek the Lord their God and David their king, and shall fear the Lord and his goodness in the latter days. The latter days. So he said Israel will be without All of these objects of worship, which they're without right now, by the way. But he said they will return. These things will be there in the latter days. Joel 3.16. The Lord also shall roar out of Zion and utter his voice from Jerusalem. And the heavens and the earth shall shake. But the Lord will be the hope of his people, the strength of the children of Israel. So shall you know that I am the Lord your God dwelling in Zion, my holy mountain. Then shall Jerusalem be holy and there shall no strangers pass through her anymore. If you go to Jerusalem right now, it's got more strangers in it than anybody. He said it won't happen then. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountains shall drop down new wine. The hills shall flow with milk. Do you remember when the 
Children of Israel went in to spout the land that they picked a cluster of grapes and it took two men to carry it. See, God, that land's under a curse right now. People look at it and say, boy, it doesn't look like much of a promised land to me. Well, it's not now. It's under a curse, just like the Jews are. Just like the Jews don't much, look much like a promised people. But uh, one day God will restore that land once again. It'll bear a cluster of grapes. It's four feet long and 18 inches across. And it takes a pole and two men to carry it. And it'll make some of the finest wine you ever drink. And it shall come to pass in that day that the mountain shall drop down new wine. The hills shall flow with milk and all the rivers of Judah shall flow with waters. There won't be any red line in the Sea of Gennesaret, Sea of Galilee then. And a fountain shall come forth of the house of the Lord and shall water the valley of Shittim. Now that, that fountain we're told about several different places. There will be a fountain flow out that becomes a river, Ezekiel describes, as deep enough to swim in. Luke twenty two twenty eight, come in the New Testament. Ye are they which have continued with me in my temptation, and I appoint you a kingdom. As my father hath appointed unto me. He's talking to his disciples toward the end of his ministry. Listen to this. That you may eat and drink in my table in my kingdom. And sit on thrones judging the 12 tribes of Israel. Now boy that's going to be a difficult difficult one to allegorize right there. Jesus said to his disciples right at the end of his ministry. Those of you who have been faithful with me in the regeneration. He said, I'll appoint to sit on 12 thrones and you'll rule over cities. Some five, some 10, some one. But he said, you will be rulers in this coming kingdom. And he said, over the 12 tribes of Israel. Now, how would you allegorize that? 12 tribes, 12 tribes, Jews, the apostles in the future will rule over 12 tribes. They never did it in their lifetime, but they will in the future, according to Jesus. Now, unless Jesus be a liar, we're all dispensationalists. We got to be. We we got to be. We got to be premillennialist. And then he says, Romans eleven twenty five. For I would not, brethren, that you should be ignorant, or a lot of people are, of this mystery, lest you should be wise in your own conceits. Yeah, plenty of people. A lot of books written. That blindness in part is happened unto Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles be come in. The blindness that's on Israel has a termination point. And that is when all of the Gentiles that are going to be saved are saved. And so, 26, all Israel shall be saved. He promises a complete salvation of all Israel. There shall come out of Zion the deliverer, shall turn away ungodliness from Jacob. And this is my covenant unto them, when I will take away their sins as concerning the gospel, their enemies for your sake, but as touching the election, they are beloved to the Father's sake for the gifts and calling of God are without repentance. Now that's a powerful passage. This is in Romans chapter 11. This was written uh, probably in uh, somewhere in the 50s uh, AD. In other words, it was written almost 30 years after Christ. So this couldn't possibly be a reference to Jesus coming the first time. This has to be a reference to a future coming. The first coming is past. So he said, blindness in part until the fullness of Gentiles become in. And he said, yes, I know they're enemies for your sake. Uh, That is, uh, they were persecuting the Christians, but it's touching the election, even though they were enemies, they are beloved For the Father's sake, for the gifts and calling of God to the Jewish people are without repentance. So let's get that passage in this context. We hear people say, referring to the gift of tongues, the gift and calling of God without repentance. It's not talking about the gifts of tongues. This is talking about God giving the Jews a special place, which we've read a representation of verses on. God says, I won't repent of that. I won't change my mind about that. Even though they're enemies of the church. Even though they're persecuting you and they're, they're blind, blinded in part. That blindness will continue until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. And then they'll all be saved because my gifts and callings are without repentance. I'm a Bible believer. Amen. I believe what the Bible says. Acts 1.6. When they therefore were come together, they asked him, saying, Lord, this is after his resurrection. 
This is just before Jesus makes his ascent into heaven. The disciples have been with him three and one half years plus 40 days of teaching. 40 days of asking questions. 40 days of him opening the scriptures and explaining into them all the things concerning himself. He's about to ascend into heaven. They know that. They say unto him, Lord, will thou at this time restore again the kingdom to Israel? They were looking for restored natural physical kingdom. And he said unto them, it is not for you to know the times or the seasons which the father hath put in his power. He didn't say which he didn't say there won't be any kingdom. He said, it's not for you to know the time or the seasons, which was an assent that it will happen. It was just the question was not timely. So he said, nevertheless, you, you receive power after the Holy Ghost. You go be witnesses. Now, finally, in Revelation chapter seven, verse four, our last passage, Revelation chapter seven, verse four. In about ninety five A.D., John, the apostle, has a vision. And God tells him to write down the things which were, which are, and which shall be hereafter. So John is writing down the things which shall be hereafter, after 95 A.D. Now that means after the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. The Amillennialist for years promoted the idea that John's writings occurred before 70 A.D. That what he was predicting was the destruction of the temple. There's too much historical evidence now to do that, but the old books still record all that. So you find modern preachers who don't keep up with things still reading the old books and saying that this applied, uh, John's writings applied to the destruction of the temple in 70 A.D. Again, you've got to totally allegorize the book of Revelation, Revelation and basically make it a worthless book to us, a meaningless book. Just a book of uh, sort of like those uh, that uh, R.J. Tolkien's, uh, what was it he wrote, uh, uh, Chronicles of Narnia or something like that. Just kind of make a Narnia chronicle out of it. To, well, what that means, you know, well, what it means to me is this. What it means to me is this. Well, it could mean different things to different people. God, God didn't write the last book in the Bible and warn you if you add one word or take away one word to this book, you'll take away your part out of the book of life and add the plagues that are written in this book to you. That sounds pretty serious. That doesn't sound like a piece of poetry to me. All right. Look what he says here. And then I heard the number of them, Revelation 7, 4. I heard the number of them which were sealed. And there were sealed a hundred and forty and four thousand of all the churches in America. Is that what it says? Of all the tribes, of all the tribes. Oh, that's just the two. What about the ten lost tribes? Of all the tribes of the children of Israel. By the way, I have a whole list in the back of my Bible that I've accumulated over the years as I run across them of references that prove that the 10, 12 tribes were present in Israel during Christ's ministry, were present during the return and are present today and will be then. That there is no such thing as 10 lost tribes. That's a figment of the imagination of some Englishmen who think they're sitting on a rock that's holy. The queen is. And I heard the number of them which were sealed, and there were sealed 144,000 of all the tribes of the children of Israel. Of the tribe of Judah, makes it clear, were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Reuben, were sealed 12,000. Tribe of Gad, tribe of Asher, tribe of Nephtali, tribe of Manasseh, tribe of Simeon, tribe of Levi, tribe of Zebulon, and he names each one. Of the tribe of Joseph were sealed 12,000. The tribe of Benjamin were sealed 12,000. Now, folks, that doesn't smack of allegorical writing. He names specifically the exact number sealed and exact name of the tribes. And then he said of the tribe of Benjamin, and behold, a great multitude, which no man could number of all nations, kindreds and people. Now, that's not the 12,000. This is a second group of people comes from all nations, all kindreds, people, tongues stood before the throne, before the lamb clothed with white robes and palms in their hands and cried with a loud voice saying, so two, two, two groups of people here. The 12,000 are not in heaven who are sealed here. They are down on earth. They are sealed so as to protect them from judgments that are coming upon the earth. They are sealed so that they can preach the gospel, which they will do. 
And eventually they will all be martyred. But not now. At this point they're being sealed while there is in heaven a great multitude of people from all nations and tongues, which is the church. It's been raptured out. Yes, I do believe in a pre-tribulational rapture. I have read the books by, uh, I've forgotten the guy's name, Pre-Wrath Rapture Rosenthal. I read it through twice carefully. I took careful notes. I read the others that people have written. I laugh at their works. Their works are immature, uninformed, and childish. These guys were not students. Had they been students and believers of the word of God, they would not come to such absurd conclusions. I've written on Rosenthal's silly conclusions. If you ever get a chance to go back and read that book, notice that he couldn't use the King James Bible to prove his point. He couldn't use a Greek Bible to prove his point. He had to resort to some various modern versions which would give different readings of certain passages in order to make his argument. Why? Because there is no single Bible on the face of the earth that will support his view. He had to resort to several of them. And so we read on, and, cry, and a great multitude cried with a loud voice, saying, Salvation to our God, which sitteth upon the throne and under the Lamb. And all the angels stood around about the throne and about the elders and the four beasts. These elders are the church. And fell before the throne on their faces and worshiped God, saying, Amen, blessing and glory and honor and thanksgiving and power be unto our God forever and ever. So while there is a praising, blood-bought, redeemed multitude in heaven around the throne, there are 144,000 Jews, 12,000 each tribe, being sealed down on the earth, who are about to go and preach the everlasting gospel, not the gospel of Jesus Christ, the everlasting gospel, the gospel of the kingdom to all nations, and then shall the end come, and he that shall endure unto the end, the same shall be saved. has nothing to do with the church. That's the kingdom of heaven. All right, we'll stop there. And uh, if you want to know more about this kingdom, you need to get my book, Eight Kingdoms. That is, that's the most valuable book I've ever written or I ever will write. The, the Eight Kingdoms is, is the greatest contribution that I have to make to Christian literature. Uh, it is a lifetime study, and it, uh, there's no one else written a book like it. Now, the, the same the, the people agree with me. There's been books written that, with the same conclusion, but no one has ever taken every verse on the kingdom in the entire Bible and coordinated them in uh, in a uh, harmony and uh, discussed each and every one of them in light of the eight kingdoms like I did in that book. All right. I will rest God's case because I see the sun is still shining and I expect it to get dark and this is fall and I expect winter soon. And as long as those things are taking place, Israel is God's chosen people. Amen. You've been listening to Michael Pearl teach the Word of God. This is a production of No Greater Joy Ministries Incorporated, a 501c3 nonprofit corporation. Upon request, we'll send you a free bi-monthly publication containing our catalog of books, tapes, CDs, DVDs, and videos by Michael Pearl. Write to us at No Greater Joy, 1000 Pearl Road, Pleasantville, Tennessee, 37033, or visit us and order online at nogreaterjoy.org.